It's a joy to worship and to pray with you. And now we're going to turn our attention to God's Word. We are in the season of Lent. This is the third Sunday in the season of Lent. And uh, we are using uh, two dreams in order to do some evaluation. Uh, the first dream is God's dream. And uh, this is a way of speaking about the kingdom of God, God's dream for us, God's dream for each and every person here and also for all of humanity. And then our dream, um, the dreams that we have for ourselves. And the invitation in Lent is always to look out at these two dreams and to see where the gap is. Uh, to see maybe where they've come together, but also to understand that in a way, there's always more uh, work to be done, to grow in order to bring God's dream and our dream together. The theologian Reinhold Niebuhr began one of his big theological works, The Nature of Man and the Destiny of Man, this way. He said, man is his most vexing problem. Man is his most vexing problem. Of course, we can say woman is her most vexing problem, right? Um, that uh, there's a way by which uh, we still don't quite understand what it means to be human and to live a life here on earth. And so we turn to the scriptures as a way to find out, as a way to get more hints and more whispers of who we really are and where this is all headed. As we think about this dream, we don't even have to look internally necessarily, although highly recommend in the Lenten season that you would look inward as well um, towards your soul and the things going on inside there. But scripture also just tells us this truth. There's a way by which our dreams and God's dreams haven't quite met up yet. And we will not fully realize what it means to have those two things be one and the same until uh, we are on the other side. And one of the scriptures that, that really reveals this important truth is from 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It is a profound Truth. It says this, for we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Uh, this is a wonderful verse, and there's a lot of meaning in here. Uh, but it, it really takes into account uh, that we have an estate before God, that there's a way that we stand before God. And so Paul tells us, he describes it so well for us. He says that we know the things of God like staring into a dim mirror. We only can see in part. But the, the same is not true on the other side. But it says that God knows us clearly. He sees each and every one of us and knows us, knows things about us that we don't even know about ourselves. 
And so what we can rely on is, is this wonderful truth that even as we are searching, um, that God knows. And of course, today we get to contemplate this, this last lamb on this treacherous hillside. Um, and we are going to ask, what does God do with such vulnerable lost lambs? And my hope is that as we do that, that you will get a sense of God's imagination, God's dream, um, and how he wants to help us to not be so vexed. Um, and that in one uh, future day, that we will not be so vexed. And that's the great truth there at the end, is that one day we will look into the face of God and that we will understand it all. But we see with the lamb here um, that the story uh, doesn't begin with happy green pastures, right? That the story begins with danger and difficulty and vulnerability. And so one of the things we see in Lent is we, we honestly evaluate uh, this ravine, this gap between us and God. But we can also say that just as Michael was saying, uh, as we were worshiping that, there's a way by which just because there's danger and uh, difficulty, real hard things in the world, that that doesn't negate that there are also beautiful things um, that, that God is breaking in. And so we live in a world where these two things live side by side with one another. They don't negate one another. Uh, they shouldn't be compartmentalized. But we actually see that there is a beautiful horizon once we understand God's dream that we're going somewhere, that we're headed somewhere more beautiful, more meaningful. And so um, let me read to you a quote from Celtic theologian since it was uh, St. Patty's Day this week. I was reading in the Celtic tradition and um, there's a beautiful writer, maybe some of you know, uh, him named John O'Donohue. If you don't know him, I highly recommend uh, going and listening to his interview on being, where he describes Celtic spirituality and also just what it means to be human in light of who God is in such a beautiful way. Uh, but let me just read one quote from him to whet your appetite. It says this, There is a quiet light that shines in every heart. It draws no attention to itself, though it is always secretly there. It is, in the end, what illuminates our minds to see beauty, our desire to seek possibility, and our hearts to love life. Without this subtle quickening, our days would be empty and, our, and wearisome, and no horizon would ever awaken our longing. And so may we, as we read this parable of Jesus, may it uh, illuminate and, and, and be like kindling to our heart's fire, and may we pay attention to what God has put inside of us, his image, his spirit inside of us, 
that yearns to be acknowledged, that yearns to be unknown and to provide warmth. Matthew 18, starting at verse 10, says this. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that there, angel, there are angels in heaven that always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that has wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In this same way, your Father in heaven is not it is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Will you pray with me? Lord, we desire to live rich, fulfilling lives. To roam the pastures you have set before us with delight. So care for us, protect us, and lead us as our good shepherd and when we inevitably lose our way and wander from the fold, would you come and find us again? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Okay, so a little bit of background here on the parable. Uh, the, this teaching in the first century that was given by Jesus uh, would have had a little bit of tension that we can't right say, a little bit of bite right at the beginning that's hard for us who have heard these words maybe a few times uh, to really pay attention to. But Jesus' first audience would have been aware of a ranking system for professions. Um, and there were some professions that the Pharisees and others who were purveyors of the religious institutions of the time would label as good professions or bad professions or, in their words, clean professions or unclean professions. And so it was their habit, the Pharisees' habit, to look down upon those who would deal in unclean professions. These unclean professions would be people who worked with animals, because animals get messy, right? People who work with different substances. Um, these were the things that the Pharisees would look and say, I'm not sure if that's the kind of thing that I want to deal with. And those who do should be called into question as lesser than, almost like a, a class system. So when Jesus begins to teach, and he's teaching that, that no, God is the good shepherd, um, and that Jesus is now on the scene um, and that he's here to get messy, to go find that lost, vulnerable sheep, it would have come with a bite for those who heard the first time. Even more so, and one of the things we can see in the rabbi teacher Jesus is that many times when he's teaching the scriptures, that there are Old Testament scriptures that he is teaching on and adding to the tradition or uh, bringing to light as a good teacher would, as every pastor is called to do, to actually teach in his time 
uh, certain stories that are present um, that are now needing to be spoken in a new way for a new time. And so many scholars think that Ezekiel 34, 11 through 19 is actually a real background and informative text for our parable in Matthew 18. And I think when you hear it, you'll hear this uh, is pretty obvious. So here these uh, words from the scripture in Ezekiel in the Old Testament. says this, For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock, and when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they are scattered on a day of cloud and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel and the ravines and all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. They will lie down in good grazing land, and they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. For you, my flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. It is not enough for you to feed on the good pasture. Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? See, Ezekiel's imagery here is important for us to notice. This prophetic imagination that's challenging his religious system in his time that is uh, the purveyor of the goods and services of religion, now we can see uh, that there's this, this challenge. What is the problem in the promised land? The problem in the promised land is the sheep that have made it there and then once they drink from the clean water, and once they have enjoyed the safe pastures, that instead of figuring out how they can build a bridge so that more people can come into the promised land, what they've done is they've destroyed all the bridges. They've put up a fence around it and said, you know what? This promised land is really good, and we want to protect it. In, in the passage, we see the actual imagery here is of clean water that is now being muddied, that the life-giving water of God is now being muddied, and it's no longer able to be drunk by the next generation or those who would come after those who've been there. God is generous. He provides, uh, he promises so much. He, he says, I'll look after you. I'll rescue you on days of cloud and darkness. 
I'll deliver you from places across the map where you've been scattered and exiled, and I'll bring you home. Um, I'll be with you through hill and valley, wherever you will go. And all that he asks is that the sheep would be willing to share, that the sheep would be willing to learn how to be in the promised land together. And Jesus even takes this promise of God further in John chapter 10, verse 11. He says, I won't just put myself at risk. He says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So there's nothing that Jesus wouldn't do for his sheep. And so the only thing that makes the unabundant life uninhabitable is the selfishness of the sheep. This is why learning to reclaim and to restore the tradition of Jesus is so vital for the church, uh, for each generation to do, to look at, okay, where have we got it right and where have we got it wrong and how do we bring forward uh, how Jesus is bringing forward the heart of God and to not put any obstacles before the heart of God or access to the heart of God. Because we need this living water and we need to learn how to let it be a life source, a life-giving source for all who come. One of the image things I was thinking about as we were worshiping and exploring these two images, right, the pearl of great price, which we spoke on uh, last week, and how that really talks about a merchant's heart that is seeking and searching and looking for the pearl of great price, which is like the kingdom of God. And when he finds it, then he's willing to sell the field, everything he has, so he can have this one possession, this one pearl of great price. And there's a real searching out, right? There's this aspect of what we should do is search out uh, the kingdom. But then our image today is of this lost sheep and how the heart of God is to go search for that one lost sheep. And as we were worshiping, I was just asking, God, what does that mean? You know, these two different uh, searches on both ends. And one of the things I felt like God was saying was that that, that, that sheep is a treasure, that that sheep is my treasure. Just like the kingdom of God is our treasure to go and seek that this lost sheep is also um, God's treasure in his heart. And so when a sheep is prone to wander and lose its way, God's heart is to go searching for it. And, And one of the things that we can learn here is that Jesus is willing to put himself at risk. That is not easy territory to navigate, right? There's no one that's more dangerous than Jesus. When the, when the road is, is utterly dark ahead and you cannot find your way, when the terrain is perilous, and you slip up and you turn your ankle, when the fear is constant and the threat paralyzes you because it overwhelms you, God will put himself at total risk for you. 
He will go through the darkest of nights. He will reach down and scoop you up when you are embarrassed and disheveled after an unexpected fall. And he will throw you on his back, carry you for miles until you are safely back at home. Jesus is not intimidated by anything on earth. There's nothing he hasn't seen before. Nothing that he hasn't overcome before. He has been tempted and tried in every way. He has been mocked. He's been lied about and betrayed and even minimized, commodified. But the gates of hell cannot stop him and his church. You know, sometimes when we deal with uh, our faith, it becomes easy to treat it more like a zoo than the wild. It becomes easier to, you know, when you go to the zoo and, and you get there. I like the zoo. It keeps you nice and safe, right? You can look at the dangerous animals, and there they are for your fascination, for your study, but you're safe behind that glass. And the glass... Uh, makes you an onlooker and a spectator, and you can learn so much about those animals. But I promise you, the moment that they open that glass and you go step in there, it's a wholly different experience with those animals and what they can teach you. And one of the things that Jesus invites us to do is to go from a zoo, domesticated type of faith into the wild. And that's what the Lenten season is calling us to, is calling us out, out to share the heart of our good shepherd who was willing to leave the safety and comfort of the 99 and to go out into the wilderness, out in the wild where things were unsure and unexpected and there were real threats and dangers and to be out there, putting himself at risk for the sake of the ones that he loves, for the sake of his treasures. And this, too, is something that when Jesus leaves the earth and goes up into heaven, that he gives to the church. And he invites his church to live into this type of legacy. One of the places we really see this is in Acts chapter 6. And deacons pay special attention here because we know that your designation is shepherd, right? And in Acts chapter 6, we find the first deacons ever in the church. The early church was growing and there were more and more people that were becoming present uh, to worship the Lord. And the outreach had begun. And so Hellenistic Jews, Greek Jews, were now becoming converts in this early church. And the church was getting so big that there were new needs that were coming. And one of the needs was that the widows within the Hellenistic uh, Jews that were now being converted were not being taken care of. And so the, the first apostles saw this issue, this issue of this vulnerable group that they knew that Jesus had taught them needed to be cared for and to love by the church. 
but they also knew that their job was to go and preach the good news of the gospel. And so what they did is they gathered a small group and they called them, they called seven uh, deacons, the first deacons of the church, and their job was to look after these widows and to make sure that this group was taken care of. One of them was Stephen, who it says in the selection of the seven was a man of great faith. Um, his faith was so significant that everyone noticed, including the enemies of the early church, the Sanhedrin. And so when we turn from chapter 6 to chapter 7 in Acts, we discover that this new deacon is now in great trouble because he was viewed as dangerous. Um, he, the way he loved, his faith stood out, and it was noticeable, and so the Sanhedrin wanted to put it down. So what they did is they put him on trial. And when they began to ask him questions, what he did is preach a sermon. Standing there before all of these uh, religious teachers who didn't want him around anymore. And what he did is he preached the gospel to them and he told them about their history. And he told them about how now all of that history is now unfolding before them and they couldn't see it. But that he was truly living into what they should be living into. And this is their response. This is in Acts chapter 7, starting at verse 54. It says, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. The witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was a dangerous deacon. And what it means that Jesus was willing to leave the 99 to go after the one is also that the heart of Jesus given to the church is seeking to take weak, watered-down Christianity and make it into rich robust, intoxicating Christianity. And one of the things that hangs in the balance and the difference between zooianity and Christianity out in the wild is our next generation who needs to understand that God is dangerous and is not weak or afraid, but is powerful and worthy of setting one's own self on an adventure to be with, to go to places that are unexpected and to do things that were never thought possible. And this is the faith that we share. 
This is the living water that we still drink and hope to not muddy up as we pass it on to the next person. Let me tell you about two dangerous deacons we have at the church as we come to a close here. The first, uh, unfortunately, she couldn't be here. She's still in recovery, is Kathy Pinkerton. I can remember over a year now ago her being in my office and looking for a new way to serve at the church. And she had gone down to see what was happening in our sack lunch program and the meal that we serve for the homeless on Tuesdays and Thursdays. She was feeling a little intimidated, not knowing if that was the right group to hang out with and spend her time with. I tried my best to encourage her, and thankfully she decided to commit to that and to take that step of faith and to be at risk and to say, okay, I want to do this ministry. I feel God's calling me to do this. And one of the real beautiful stories that has come out of that is her relationship with Ronald. Uh, many of you have met Ronald. He's been here to worship with us many times. But the relationship that really developed was out of Ronald's desire to learn more about Scripture. And so there were many times where I would walk down um, to give the devotional, and I would see Kathy reading the Bible to Ronald, who didn't have an easy time reading. And so Kathy had committed to reading to Ronald as much as he wanted to hear from the Bible. And these are the risks that we take, not knowing where they will lead, but when we get there, we discover the kingdom, that God has a plan and a purpose out there. And so maybe you're uneasy and you don't know exactly uh, what the right next risky step is, but you know that there's a way by which God is calling you into ministry, into more. And I pray that you would use the dangerous deacon Kathy Pinkerton as your inspiration. Another story that I think beautifully illustrates uh, what is going on here in this parable is a story from Sally Nichols, um, who came to a memorial service not that long ago, and she knew her friend Nancy probably would have been in attendance for the memorial, but for whatever reason, she wasn't there. And so she noticed, she looked over the flock and she saw that there was one who was missing. And so she didn't just say, oh, that's weird that, that she wasn't there. She got on the phone. She called her. And when she was on the phone, she discovered that there was something wrong in Nancy's voice. So much so that she called her daughter Cassie. Cassie called her mother and they realized that there was something really wrong. And Cassie was able to call for help, and help was able to come. And by the time that they got there, they realized that Nancy was in a very critical situation. They took her to the hospital, and after weeks, she was finally able to recover, when nobody knew if that was going to happen. And so it was because of a dangerous deacon and their willingness to step out and to make the phone call, to pay attention 
and to love, to love the people of this church enough to take notice of who isn't here to save somebody's life, to play a part in saving somebody's life. This is the heart of God spoken about through this parable of the lost sheep that I pray that uh, you can see these beautiful examples. Would you live into the, the witness of dangerous deacon Sally Nichols as she inspires us to love the way that Jesus loves? In Genesis uh, 48, 15, Jacob, at the end of his life, he says this, God has been the shepherd of my life all the days of my life. And in Revelation 7, 17, in one of the striking images of the saints brought before God, the images, two of the most striking images of all scripture come together. It says this, for the lamb is at the center of the throne and they shall, he shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of living water. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eye. Knowing that we have a good shepherd for all the days of our lives. And that one day he will guide us to the ultimate springs of living water. May we be more willing to take our faith out into the wild unknown where there are so many who are desperate for us to take notice of them and to love them with the heart of the Father and to say they too, these weak, vulnerable ones, are our treasure to be found. And when we find them, may we discover the kingdom of God in our midst and know that our soul is glad and that is what it was made to do. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, would you help us to be faithful to you, um, to step out and uh, do dangerous acts of love and mercy and kindness. And like Stephen, Lord, I pray that we would not be afraid, um, that we would, we would love and would it bear witness and then whatever comes from there, may it be your will. May we stand in faithfulness to what you have called us to. I thank you for the testimony of those here at St. Andrews who have listened to uh, your voice and have lived into this beautiful uh, heart that you have given us uh, to shepherd and to care. Call forth more shepherds, Lord. Call forth more dangerous deacons um, so that we might know your kingdom even more. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen.